your own name. Amen. I enjoy doing Q&As. One of the greatest reasons for that is that God's Word has the answers. It's a matter of searching and studying until we find the answers. Uh, the, the Word of God is all-sufficient for the issues of life. It has the, the answers to the questions we haven't even thought of yet. Uh, I don't do them probably frequent enough, and so I thought it would behoove us to spend a little time, and uh, if it goes in over for a couple of weeks, that is, that is fine before we start a, another Bible series. I had sent an email out uh, soliciting any questions that might be out there, and one of those questions that came in was from a member of the church here, and if I could find it, uh, it's easiest to know what the question, uh, question is before we head for an answer. So, where is it? Here we go. Here's the cue. I was listening to Steve Lawson this past week, and he was talking about God's wrath in hell in the context of God's attributes. We sometimes see it portrayed in pop culture that the devil is the one who inflicts the punishment in hell. Pastor Steve was explaining that it isn't Satan that is doing the inflicting, but it will be the Lamb of God. He was also saying that hell isn't the absence of God because of His attribute of omnipresence. He is, in fact, present in hell. Could you explain how Pastor Steve's comments should be taken and understood in the context of who God is and the Scripture that backs up these comments? I ask because I really hadn't thought about it that way in the past. And forgive me if my above paraphrasing is misconstruing what Pastor Steve is saying. I don't want to put words in his mouth. You know, I, I can appreciate somebody not wanting to put words in the mouth of uh, a fellow laborer, preacher in the Word. So let's start with contemplating the attributes of God. No study probably turns my crank quite like thinking about the grandeur, the greatness of God that is somewhat revealed to us in Scripture. God has revealed His person and His plan in Scripture, but there is so much mystery. You study God properly and long enough, it ought to blow a fuse in your brain because He is incomprehensible is one of the theological terms that ought to quickly come to mind. And yet, though God is incomprehensible, He is knowable. Talk about a paradox a seeming contradiction that God is both incomprehensible and knowable. John Calvin in his Institutes of Christian Religion and, and you know, I, one of the reasons why I quote Calvin is not to be some blind Calvinist. John Calvin was one of the brightest theologians ever throughout church history. He was a brilliant man. Though he got a lot wrong, he got a lot right. 
If the first thing I'd read in the Institutes was about uh, what Calvin had to say about baptism, I would have said, you know, Calvin, you're all wet. But uh, uh, he stated in the Institutes, although God, in order to keep us within the bounds of soberness, treats sparingly of his essence, in other words, he doesn't tell us a whole lot or maybe as much as we'd like to know, Still, by the two attributes which I've already mentioned, that of knowability and incomprehensibility, he at once suppresses all gross imaginations and checks the audacity of the human mind. A study on who God is ought to elicit greater humility. Uh, It puts God on display and a proper perspective of us, minimizing us as well. John Feinberg, in his book, No One Like Him, says, since God's being is pure spirit and hence invisible, without His attributes, there would be little we could know about God, and it would be difficult to conceptualize Him at all. So we enjoy studying His attributes. You might wonder, what are His, what are his attributes? Defined by Strong in his systematic theology, he said, God's attributes are those distinguishing characteristics of the divine nature which are inseparable from the idea of God and which constitute the basis and ground for His manifestations to His creatures. So, what makes God God? His attributes. His attributes don't add anything to Him. They simply reveal His natures. Now, in studying His attributes, before I mention His omnipresence, which is where we're going with this question that was, that was posed, uh, when I'm taking people through a study of His attributes, one of the first ones to come across is God's aseity. Uh, anybody take, who, who took Latin in school? Anybody? One? And, uh, yeah, it's like, why'd they do away with Latin? Uh, God depends on nothing else for His existence. He's eternal, eternally existed without any exterior or, or prior cause. This, this doctrine of God's aseity comes from the Latin ase, from itself. From Himself, He exists. That is beyond our comprehension and beyond our experience because we are totally dependent trying to understand the totally independent one. No one brought Him into existence nor sustains His existence. He is self-existent. If you wanted to uh, join me in John 5 and then we'll launch into more of the answer to the question that was posed. This, this I'm just sharing because I love the verse. This, this is one of those big God passages, and we need to frequent these passages of Scripture that put God on display because that not only leads us into humble worship and grateful service, but that's our sustenance. We need a bigger view of God as He reveals Himself in Scripture. John 5.26 speaks to this attribute of God, this non-moral attribute of His aseity that He exists in and of Himself. For as the Father has life in Himself, 
even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. This understanding, along with many others, is proper if we are to have a high view of God, that He has life in Himself. Now, that attribute is a freebie. I just mentioned that in passing so that uh, uh, we can go more to the question. As we're thinking about where God's at, and uh, as this brother here at Newtown was, was wondering, okay, is, is God present in hell? We talk about God's presence with believers, how that He dwells in believers. Does that mean He's not around unbelievers? So let's think through this doctrine of God's Omnipresence. What are, God, what are the omnis? The all-knowingness, the omniscience of God. Omnipresence, the all-presence of God. And what's the third? You know I'm deaf, guys. Huh? Omnipotence, all-powerfulness. So in regards to His all-presence, His omnipresence, we, we dive a little deeper than maybe what we're accustomed to when we talk about His omnipresence. By definition, what is omnipresence? God is present in the totality of His being every place in space. That is His omnipresence. He's present in the totality of His being every place in space. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology book, which uh, we've got in the book nook, I'd recommend even though uh, there's no theologian that, get, that uh, uh, dots every theological I and crosses every theological T like, like we would like them to. There's inconsistencies, though, it, we'd, we'd recommend Grudem's systematic theology. He says, God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with His whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. You get that? Though He's... He's present everywhere. He acts differently in different places. So the, one of the questions that comes to mind as you think through His all-presence, how can God fill any space since He doesn't have a body? God is what? Spirit. God is spirit. One theologian uh, Mentioned even today, many try to limit God. They see Him as a figure confined to heaven, sitting on a brilliant throne way off in some celestial palace, and they don't think of Him as being anywhere else. He, however, cannot be confined to any one place. Yes, Scripture reveals God as the one who sits in the heavens. But God is not present physically in any place in space, let me give you a phrase that, or, a, or a word that, that you will come across. If you, if you study God's attribute of omnipresence, you'll come across this term, His ontological presence. Anybody ever heard about uh, ontology or uh, the study of His presence, His ontological presence? Uh, I mention it just so you can be familiar if you come across it and you can associate it somewhere. 
and you can remember I heard it somewhere, somewhere before, we're talking about his essential nature. That is, when, when theologians talk about his ontological presence, we're talking about his essential nature, his godness, his identity as God, his, his, his essential nature everywhere. Now, it would be very easy, if you go push the envelope too far on any spectrum, you can fall into heresy. Like, uh, if we're talking about God being present anywhere, uh, if, if you look at it through the wrong lens, you turn into a pantheist. We must make sure we don't say God is present at each point in space, but He is present with or in addition to every point in space. So I, I mentioned the example since the, the question was, is, like, is he present in hell or present with unbelievers? There's a difference between his ontological presence, his essential nature as a spirit being above time and space, body restraints like we have. We can only be at one place at one time. So there's a difference between God's ontological presence and His spiritual or moral presence. Think about God's moral presence. Think about His moral attributes. God is so holy, He cannot, what? He cannot look upon sin. Who can, the psalmist asks, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Only thine is with a clean hands and a pure heart. So his spiritual presence implies some relationship of fellowship with another being. So when we talk about how God is not present with unbelievers like he is with believers, there is not that fellowship. Though God's everywhere, and we're going to look at some scriptures to, to, that develop this in, in just a moment, but he is absent spiritually from the wicked. His moral presence is absent. The psalmist begins his collection of psalms in Psalm 1 by pronouncing blessing to the Old Testament saint, does he not? Blessed. How truly and totally inside and outside happy is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And as the godly one is pursuing God's face and a life of relationship and fellowship and obedient trust to the Lord, he knows that joy of the Lord. That uh, Paul talks about how that... Uh, the, the, the child of God who is fellowshipping with God as Father experiences peace which the natural man can't, can't understand, right? It's a peace that passes all human understanding. You try to put words in a conversation for unbelievers of what you experience here at church or at another church when you're on vacation, they're not going to comprehend that. Even it's it's hard enough trying to explain to fellow believers who experience the same thing that that presence of the Lord, like the old chorus we've sung, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. You know, God goes to the places where His name is manifest, 
where His Word is held in esteem, where He is honored. There's a lot of church buildings God does not go to. But where the church is, God is. And so, there's, so think through two different lenses of His ontological presence, His essential nature, and His spiritual or moral presence where there is fellowship, where there is kinship, where there's relationship. So through the new covenant, there is a special intimate indwelling that God the Spirit has with Christians that He did not have with old covenant saints. Spirit baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And and we've been reading through the book of Acts for our daily Bible readings, and that is the unfolding as the gospel goes out. You remember in the early parts of the narrative, there were those that the Spirit hadn't fallen upon yet. But once the Spirit comes, He signifies the new covenant reality. So when you, when you think about God being everywhere, His all-presence, His omnipresence, yes, He is everywhere, but He is not morally present in His holiness where there is wickedness. Uh, one, uh, one teacher I've learned from uh, put it this way. He said, he said, the symbol of God's presence is never the prison of His essence. So, for instance, let, let's trace that thought down, that the, that the symbol of God's presence is never the prison of His essence. Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, 19. And He says, when you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, but He's not only in heaven. And yet, to speak of God in heaven is to think of Him robed in splendor, exalted on His throne, being worshipped perfectly, unhindered by sin, by His created beings there. So we pray to the glorified God and seek to glorify Him in our, in our prayers, knowing that prayer isn't for His benefit, but for ours. It's to get, uh, uh, some have defined prayer as searching and submitting to the will of God. So it's, it's as we're getting in the mode of reducing our will and increasing His will in our lives. and So when we pray to our Father in heaven, we're recognizing who He is and who we are. The, uh, to, to use that term we used earlier, the aseity of God, the, we are praying as dependent ones to the independent one. So is omnipresence. Let me chase it down a little bit further. It is impossible to escape from the ontological or essential presence of God. You know some of the verses we're going to. Let's start in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, 23. And again, these, are pa- these big God passages are ones that, uh, uh, that we live in light of. So when life's difficult, you run to it. Yeah, you better sit down and take ravenous notes. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 23. 
Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? I love that verse. These are rhetorical questions. You ever ask a kid a rhetorical question and they're trying to answer you? It's like, do you not realize this is a question I do not, you know, you, you ask them, why'd you leave that there? And they go into this long explanation. It's like, I asked you why you left it there, meaning you need to pick it up and take care of it. So God asks rhetorical questions. You know, how, how ludicrous is it for a man to think he can hide himself in hiding places. In the book of Revelation, when John talks uh, through his, his revelation of Jesus Christ, he talks about what's going to take place in the great tribulation. And he tells us that unbelieving man is going to recognize that these judgments are from God. And they're going to cry for the rocks to fall upon them. You know, they're trying to hide themselves in a hole. Hide us from that majestic one. It's foolish. Can't hide from him. So let's go to the, uh, the, the more familiar passage that probably came to mind. Psalm 139. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Boy, we, have, we need to live there. Psalm 139, verse number 7. This is the morning for rhetorical questions. Look what the psalmist asks in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? The obvious answer? Nowhere. He's, and, and he goes on to give a prolonged answer. All he needed was that one word, nowhere. But he chases it down a little bit. Notice verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. So again, Jesus teaches us to pray, and he says, pray to your Father, which art in heaven. And yet... The symbol of his presence is not the prison of his being. So like we, uh, in our call to worship this morning, David gives praise because the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence, was brought. When the Shekinah glory of God would set down in the camp and the wilderness wanderings, what did that contain God? Is that all? No, that was just a concentrated presence. So the psalmist says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me, will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are a light to you. What a, what a great 
passage when you're, you know, some, to, to teach the kids, you know, if they're scared of the dark or something, this, the psalmist said, uh, <laughs> this might be dark to me, it's not dark to you. So reiterating the point, it is impossible to escape from the ontological or essential presence of God. God's everywhere. He fills the heavens. It is equally important to point out another point, that it is impossible to limit God to just one spatial location. Turn with me to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 27. Solomon is giving a prayer of dedication. Verse 22 tells us that he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven, and he began to pray. Notice verse 27. He recognized that this place that he had built for God, his dad couldn't build it. Why, why wasn't David allowed to build it? Because he's a man of war. And so he said, uh, I'll let your son build it, Solomon. But Solomon recognized that uh, this wasn't a prison of his being, that, 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 that this house wouldn't, contain, wouldn't be all there is. Back in verse uh, 16, my name might be there. It's a, he built a house to the name of the Lord. This is why a few weeks ago we looked at Psalm 122 about gladness and worshiping God. They, they went up to the, the temple to worship. They went up to Jerusalem and those that have been brought near into the new covenant uh, do corporate worship as well. But Solomon said here in verse 27, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. It's just a symbol of your presence. Just a symbol of your presence. If you wanted to fill in with a couple other of the Old Testament prophets' insight, if you wanted to jot down Isaiah 66, 1, where God says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool, where there is, then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being. When we say God is omnipresent, God is present everywhere, we're saying He has no spatial limitations. While His being can be localized, Every corner of the universe is before his mind constantly. It's never beyond his grasp. That's a staggering reality. That while we go to bed at night, God 
keeps the laws of nature in motion, keeps the heart ticking. He takes care of the concerns and, and difficulties of life, and he's weaving it all together according to his sovereign master plan for his glory and for our good, working it together to conform us to the image of Christ. So though God is not present in fellowship with unbelievers and rebels against His cause and His name, and though He is not present in pouring out blessing in hell, we must remember, as Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. He's only meeting out the pangs in hell according to His marching orders by God. So it's impossible to limit him to just one spatial location. Uh, even, even the coming of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you know, when, when Jesus came to earth, robed himself in flesh, the, the condescension that uh, Philippians 2 speaks about, uh, and, and the Holy Spirit coming, you can't, it can't be thought of as limiting to one place. There, there's no end to him. Unless you think that uh, such a discussion is only interesting to theologians who often discourse on how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. This has great carryaway, great application in our lives as we contemplate the greatness of God and His omnipresence. How consoling to know that the God who is everywhere can handle anything I go through. And though He is above time, steps into time. He deals with His children as a, as a what? As a father. Taking care and note of the details of life. Jesus uh, speaks of that in uh, uh, Matthew 6. Shortly after instructing in the model prayer, he gives the command to not worry. And he uses God's presence and power over nature as illustrative material. God takes note of the birds that fall from the air to make a comparison to the kind of detail he takes in our lives. That's not just for theologians to contemplate. That is for children of God to think about. Thoughts, questions? Yes. A couple minutes ago, my brain got stuck on this. Okay. The devil was meting out the pain and the hell. Okay. I thought that hell was where God brings out the justice. Mm hmm. Prepared for the devil and his angels. So, so in the question uh, that I, I read earlier, it was uh, people think of the devil, you know, that, that hell is Satan's domain. But we must not leave that, you know, hell is, as, a, as a place to the devil. It, it's, it's God's place of judgment. Though he might use means, uh, I think one... What's that? So you're saying the devil is dulling out pain in hell. 
I don't think he's the ruler, uh, though God can use his instrumentality for his glory and for his good in the same way that he'll use heathen, like uh, uh, Solomon talks about how that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, and, and he doesn't specify that this is only a believing king. You know, God, God uses the heathen to rage, uh, to, uh, to accomplish his purposes. God will use Gentile kings, like he'll, he'll use Babylon, uh, a wicked nation, to punish the children of Israel. And it's remarkable that God did, doesn't just use his people, saints, but he uses unbelievers to accomplish his purpose. That's how powerful he is. Um, I think another tool he will use in hell, not just the devil, but we use our own conscience as people contemplate and rehearse those gospel opportunities they heard. They were given opportunity to repent, and they didn't. Um, so then my point, whether I, whether I stated it confusingly, which I probably did, uh, is that we need not think of hell as Satan's domain, but it is God's domain. That God is as glorified in punishment on unbelievers as He is on blessing of believers in heaven. And that's, that's, a, that's a hard, hard truth when you think of it. Really hard truth. Other questions or clarifications? Other questions to begin contemplating? Ones that were not emailed in that we will hold over till next week? Nothing? Because I know I can't answer anything in five minutes. So, we. Issue of psychology, yep.
Let me rephrase to make sure I've got the question, and I'll give a, give a thought to begin contemplating this week, and we'll develop a more thorough answer for, for next week. You mentioned about how that the, the church as a whole, not just this church, but Christendom, evangelicalism, has engulfed, swallowed hook, line, and sinker the idea of psychology and its place because of their understanding of hard cases and the need for professionals and medications and that there's a disconnect. Uh, we spent a number of weeks in adult Sunday school going through biblical counseling and uh, I think a number of those sessions are on the website, and so you could start perusing through some of that. Um, let me give you a, an oversimplified and vastly abbreviated, insufficient answer to think about. If Peter addresses this issue... And we are to take him literal in Second Peter chapter 1 that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness and that he's given us a sufficient Christ and a sufficient scripture that psychology and the Bible are incompatible with each other. Now, saying that, I do believe that there is a place for psychiatrists in dealing with organic issues of the brain, and I'm using the brain intentionally, not the mind, because the mind is the heart of man, and I don't want to go to the wisdom of man. I want to go to the doctor of the soul who's going to take the scalpel of the Word of God and address the mind or my soul. Um, so there are organic brain issues that only a psychiatrist can prescribe medication for. Psychologists cannot. The benefit, the, what I see is the only benefit psychologists have to play in my life, when they are, when they are uh, diagnosing somebody with a certain disorder, that label, though I'm not, don't play the label game, takes into its package as a host of symptoms, which I as a biblical counselor find helpful in my data of some of the issues, of some of the, their responses to the issues of life, they're helpful. But what happens with a psychologist is not, not just when they... Uh, 
give the constellation of behaviors and, and symptoms, but when they go to their next step of diagnosing why, right when they use, whether they use the word why or not, that is right where my ears turn off. Because they're not gonna they're gonna deal with it through a physical worldly realm, through man's understanding not through a biblical spiritual guideline that understands that man is material and immaterial. He is body and soul created in the image of God. And the why I have all through Scripture. And so, uh, what I'd encourage you to percolate on this week, or more biblically terminology, meditate on, is some of the scriptures that speak to the sufficiency of scripture, like Second Peter one and Psalm nineteen, that law which is perfect, converting the soul, and 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 formulate even some some intervening questions in regards to this, so that we can dialogue through it through a biblical lens. Uh, I, I'm thrilled. Jesse and I are heading out to uh, the national conference of uh, the Association of Biblical Counselors in, in October, and the special theme is in regards to uh, uh, medication and whatnot. I'm a doctor, not of medicine. Don't come to me for your prescription. I am to be a… but even people that are… people that handle the Word of God are to be doctors of the soul, brothers and sisters in Christ as we one another each other as we counsel each other, as we exhort each other towards holiness, as we stimulate each other to love and good deeds, we need to know the answers, and we need to know how to bring those answers to bear upon the issues of life. Speaking the truth in what? Love. Truth and love balanced together. Pray with me. Father, we ask that You would uh, help us to think righteously and biblically about the issues of life, whether it be the question about Your presence that we thought about this morning, or the place of man, or the sufficient Scriptures. Lord, we want to be people of the book. We want to be Bereans to see if these things be so. Wherever we are cut, we want to bleed Bible. Help us to memorize it. Help us to meditate on it. Help us to know it. Help us to do it to the praise of our great King.